Welcome to Heroes of Brand Protection Podcast, Episode 31. I'm your host, Daniel Shapiro, Senior Vice President of Strategic Partnerships here at RedPoints, the world's fastest growing digital revenue recovery platform with a mission to make the internet safer for both brands and consumers. In this podcast, we will share stories and industry insights from some of the leading experts in brand protection and at that counterfeiting from many different industries. We are so happy you could join us today. And please check out all of our episodes on www.redpoints.com forward slash podcast. Today, we are thrilled to be speaking with Tarak Fami, Director of the Office of International IP Enforcement in the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. He works closely with the Department of State bureaus and U.S. diplomats to identify intellectual property rights and formulate strategies to engage foreign governments and build political will to address and improve issues. But how did Tarek get here? After his MBA in global management, our guest was awarded the Presidential Management Fellowship. Tarak first entered the Department of Energy. However, he knew he wanted to get into the international scene. Eventually, he got his foot in the door of the global sanctions team, which allowed him to make his way to the Department of State. You would never guess this, but Tarak had very different plans when he was a kid. Tune in to find out. Tarek, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. We're thrilled to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great. So maybe to get started and get us comfortable with one another and ask you this tricky question, which is, you know, in your mind, is cereal uh, a soup or not a soup? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely not. <laughs> it's not a soup. Huh? <laughs> no way. Because you uh, put it in separately and then you eat it. No, no, that doesn't work that way. With soup. Okay. It's good. It's good. It's good to, we've had, you know, there's been some controversy as to whether cereal is a soup or it's a cereal. But anyway, we thank you for your answer. That's great. <laughs> when you think about your career and you've had an extensive career in many different areas, is yep. there a particular... I'll say a funniest moment that sometimes as you're having a beer with your friends or a drink with your friends and you barbecue or whatever, and you kind of repeat this story as one of those crazy things that happened in your career. Is there, there a story like that you share often with friends? Oh my goodness. I mean, that should be a separate podcast episode, <laughs> but I mean, you know, in, in, in the work that I do and in, in working with the state department, you know, you really find yourself in some, or you know, just fascinating moments. And so, gosh, if we're talking about funny, you know, maybe the, the funniest one for me, we were, in New York at the United Nations, and we were getting ready to go into a, a fairly serious negotiation with a country that I, I won't name, but they speak Arabic as, you know, their their first language. And so I was briefing, you know, our special representative before at the hotel. And I, as I was briefing, I thought, oh my God, I completely forgot my United Nations credentials with me. And so I thought I have to go back to my other hotel, which is on the other side of New York, grab it and run back. So I said, sir, I'm so sorry. You know, here's your briefing. I'm going to try as fast as I can, you know, to go and to come back as, as quickly as I possibly can. So I do it. I hop in a cab. I, I run to the hotel, run up to the room, grab my credentials, run back, get into the United Nations, find the room. And then, you know, you have to take that deep breath real quick before you open the door and kind of sneak your way in so that you don't get noticed. And so I took my deep breath. I opened the door and, you know, was trying to sneak in. And the foreign minister of that country stopped the meeting and in Arabic said to his whole delegation, which was across the room from the U.S. delegation, in Arabic, he said, everybody stop talking. Tarek's here and he speaks Arabic. And so you can't get anything past him by speaking Arabic. 
And then they continued on with the meeting. And so it was just one of those, one of those moments that you think, oh, I really wish that that could have gone differently. Yeah, that was instead of the sneak in, that was the for, formal introduction. Tarek is in the room, right? <laughs> it, it was. But, I, you know, I must say, you know, working at the State Department, not necessarily funny moments, but you have so many moments that are just kind of you have to pinch yourself moments and, and to take a second to kind of appreciate the situations that you find yourself in and an appreciation for the work that we're doing. It's uh, it's been amazing. Well, that sounds fantastic. Well, share with us a little bit about you know, how you got here in a sense, like when you were young, what what did you want to be when you grew up? (laughs) Well, when I, when I was growing up, I guess I I wanted to be an ocean photographer uh, of all things in the world. But, you know, uh, interesting because I was born and raised in Cedar Falls, Iowa with zero ocean anywhere near me, but I thought that it'd be a fascinating thing. It it was a dream, uh, I guess, but my family was so supportive and they would buy me books and, you know, they would you know, totally support my dream. And and finally, not last year, but the year before, I went scuba diving for the first time. And I didn't realize my dream, but gosh, I thought, you know, I was on the right path. <laughs> That's awesome. And then as you move from this idea of being a ocean photographer, how did you begin to proceed down this professional career that you're in today? What was the connecting points that brought you here? Yeah, Sure. I mean, gosh, it's, it's, it's a long road, but, you know, I think the best way to describe it is, is that, you know, my parents are actually, you know, Egyptian immigrants and, and they found themselves uh, in Iowa. My father was a professor at the University of Northern Iowa. And it was really important for them as, as we grew up that, you know, not only we got to kind of see the world, but, you know, really understand what was happening. And we weren't traveling somewhere, then, you know, he'd make sure I was caught up on the news of the day and, you know, kind of showed me that there's a world that is, that is bigger out there. And so, you know, I thought to myself, international business is maybe kind of the, the direction that I want to go as, as broad of a, you know, as a, as a category as you can possibly get there. I thought, okay, let me, let me work my way more towards international business. And so ultimately that's what, you know, I studied when I went to, uh, to school for undergrad and for post, uh, postgraduate school for my MBA, also did the international business route as well. And so as much as I thought that I was going to go that way, I was afforded the opportunity to get the presidential management fellowship with the U.S. government. And that's what really kind of changed the direction where I was headed in my career. And, you know, the most natural transition was to work in a CFO's office. And so at the Department of Energy, they brought me on to work in the, in the chief financial officer's office. But I always kind of continued to have, you know, a little, little birdie telling me, you need to get back into the international sphere. You need to get into the international sphere. And so that's when I made my transition to uh, the Department of State. And I've been there uh, ever since. How do you crack that space, right? I mean, a lot of people might want to work for the State Department or a federal office. And it yeah. sounds super cool, by the way. But question is, how, how do you crack that? How, how do you get that foot in the door kind of thing? Well, I, I tell you, I, you know, I use the Presidential Management Fellowship route to, to get my foot in the door with the federal right. government. But there are so many other fantastic programs, whether it's the AAAS Fellowship, whether it's the Pathways Program, for people to get their foot in the door. And then from there, it's really kind of a create your own adventure kind of scenario. And so uh, while I still had my fellowship, there's an opportunity for a rotation. And I focused my rotations at the State Department. And I said, you know, anybody that's willing to kind of bring me on at State, I just need to get my foot in the door there. And lucky enough, the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs provided me that opportunity. And then after a few months, another opportunity came open within the Sanctions Policy Office and that's how I got my permanent uh, foot in the door with the State Department. And then, you know, and, and of course, looking at your bio and your resume, how do you make that transformation from that department over to the Office of IP Enforcement? 
how does that happen? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's it's a uh, <laughs> lesson in just keeping doors open, I guess. And so, no, you know, you know, both of the offices are actually in the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs at the oh, State okay. Department, which has you know several different offices which deal with international financial institutions, with commercial business diplomacy, transportation affairs, sanctions policy, international intellectual property and trade policy. So there's a whole host of offices that sit in the Bureau of Economic and Business Affairs. I see. And I didn't have a background in sanctions either. And so, you know, when I got into the sanctions policy shop, it was a matter of just being good at your job. And, you know, as you work your way up through the ladder, other opportunities show themselves. And so when the IP office had an opportunity, I thought, you know, this is just a a fascinating space to be in and a fascinating way to represent the United States. Oh, wonderful. And, and maybe, Tarek, for those that don't know, you know, what that office does, maybe share with us a little bit about what the Office of IP Enforcement at the U.S. Department of State does. Uh, just a brief overview for those listening and want to understand exactly what that office does. Sure. So the Office of Intellectual Property Enforcement at the State Department, I would say, is the hub for intellectual property at the State Department. So, you know, how do we take intellectual property and input it into broader policy conversations that we're having, you know, across the board. And I think we kind of group ourselves into a few different buckets, but the first and most important one is obviously the policy bucket. And so in our bilateral engagements with countries, how do we make sure that intellectual property is something that they're focused on, is something that they're inputting into their systems and their rules and regulations, and how do we have that conversation? But, you know, within that, also in the policy sphere, you know, the U.S. government is in the IP world famous for having the Special 301 report, the Notorious Markets List. You know, we work really hard and closely with our colleagues at the U.S. Trade Representative on developing those documents. And then my office is also in the division that is the Trade Negotiations Division. So when we're talking about TIFAs and trade negotiations and policy dialogues, making sure that intellectual property is inserted in as many of those as we possibly can to keep it as under the spotlight as we can. But also, you know, we work on the multilateral world as well, whether you're talking at the World Intellectual Property Organization, WTO TRIPS, OECD, my office plays a role in making sure that U.S. delegations are properly represented and that U.S. policy is properly communicated in in those different areas as well. On the enforcement side of things, you know, we have one person that works very closely with the IPR center. And so when there are law enforcement aspects of intellectual property, you know, we keep our our hand in, in that game as well. But then you know, one of the most important things that we can possibly do, and, and I think something the State Department should do and, and should do very well, is industry coordination and education and outreach. And so on industry coordination, you know, it's it's a day in, day out that I'll have a conversation with one of the various IP-related industry associations to tell me what's going on in their worlds, you know, tell me what issues they're having and how the U.S. government can can possibly fit into it. And then, you know, on the education and outreach side of it, making sure that Consumers all around the world know the importance of intellectual property protection, know the threat that counterfeit goods and IP infringement can can bring to them and and their lives. And that's just a constant battle, as you know. Yeah, for sure. And it's a pretty extensive role you describe. I I guess if, if there was a version of like a sentence, is there a one sentence thing that sort of encapsulates the the department or or it's just that broad? (laughs) Well, Gosh, you know, I'll, I'll have to pull it up and I'll and I will read it to you. But, you know, every year I challenge the team to actually have a mission statement for the office. Right. Because you're right. If we don't focus and, and know, you know, then some of those things can get lost. And so the current mission statement for the office is that the Office of Intellectual Property Enforcement is the State Department's leader on IP rights 
We drive policy that contributes to U.S. competitive advantage, innovation, and economic prosperity by building political will and public support for the protection of enforcement of IPR globally. There you go. So a little bit more than one sentence. That's awesome. Oh, sorry. My dog just, I, I'm, I'm having to do one of your courses. My, my dog is, she's a big truck of lab. She's banging around here. Sit, girl. Oh, that's awesome. Sit. Sorry, sorry about that. No, totally fine. For most of our listeners in this space, protecting IP rights tends to be critical. We speak to a lot of brands. Yeah. When you think about that connectivity between what you do and sort of the concept of helping from giant enterprise brands to small brands and entrepreneurial brands that are developing, you know, IP around their products, what would you say or what kinds of things important to know to help them protect their intellectual property rights? Well, I mean, I think when it comes to working directly with our office, you know, communication is, is everything, right? You know, it's, it's very hard for us to know what we don't know. And that's why, you know, I feel privileged to sit in the chair that I sit in because, you know, companies and other industry associations will proactively reach out to us when there are, you know, specific issues. But I think the thing that's really important to know is that, you know, the U.S. government is absolutely gigantic. There are many agencies, many offices and really dedicated, you know, civil servants that care about intellectual property and protecting it. And so if it's not something that the State Department will directly, you know, be able to help you out with, you know, that communication with me can then open doors with some of the other agencies. Is it an enforcement issue that we need to bring in some of the enforcement agencies? Is it a, an issue that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office would be the best to handle? Because I, I understand from the outside looking in, it's huge and can be very hard to manage. And so I think for especially, you know, the smaller companies, you know, the, the large companies, they've got it figured out, right? They, they have people who are, you know, dedicated to maintaining these relationships with their government counterparts. However, some of the smaller, you know, enterprises don't have that person that is absolutely dedicated to making sure that they talk to Tarek Fahmy. And so knowing that there are people here to have that conversation, no matter how large or small the company is, to make sure that we're providing you the best support that we possibly can as a U.S. company, you know, that's what we're here to do. That's what the taxpayers pay us for. Yeah, and you know, interesting, because for me, I'm not an IP lawyer, you're not an IP lawyer. Maybe you've earned your PhD in IP since you've been in this job. <laughs> but like you said, for some some smaller brands, the challenge is they don't have that arsenal of in-house attorneys that have this expertise, right? And so it's an important concept for for many brands to think about how do you do this when you don't have that size or scale, right? And then can you actually communicate with your office for help or direction or et cetera? So that's very, very cool. When you think about some of the challenges of your job today, is there something that sort of sticks out as one of the more challenging features of your job or your responsibility? Well, I mean, yes, of course, there, there's, there's obviously challenges. And, you know, I think in the unbelievably complex diplomatic and political world that we live in right now. You know, one of the challenges of my job in the State Department is making sure that, you know, that the spotlight on IP is as bright as it needs to be in some conversations. And, you know, obviously when there are things happening in the world, we have to know when to kind of tone down our expectations. And, you know, if we're working really well and, and something happens, then sometimes you have to take a step back. So finding the right, the right balance of making sure IP is in the perfect spot in the bilateral conversation with certain countries is obviously a challenge. And then, you know, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but, you know, consumer education is just absolutely critical. 
right? And, and one of the challenges of my job is, is making sure that if ultimately the users of IP infringed products are not brought in and, and not educated, then it's an absolute uphill battle. And that's one of the tough parts that you just have to continually grind it out on. Yeah, totally. And you know, I think about that as you say, like education. One of the challenges when I talk to a lot of different people in the industry, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's, you know, like yourself in in the State Department or, you know, brands, this challenge in e-commerce today as e-commerce is this giant space, people, you know, run up against this kind of whack-a-mole process where, you know, you take something down, it pops up again, or the repeat in the process. It's this never-ending battle. Yeah different your job than my job, but is there a thought you have around recommendations for brands that are facing this? Well, you know, I think I might look at it a little bit different than some of the the brands and how they're facing it in that, you know, when you're talking about whack-a-mole and you're talking about, you know, just constant challenges that pop up with counterfeits and, and with other goods, you know, criminals are smart and they are going to continue to adapt to whatever cards we deal them on the policy side. And so from my perspective, the really important thing for me to look at is how do we get down to the foundation of where the issue is, right? If the issue is in a particular country, how do we ensure that we advocate for the proper rules and regulations and laws in that country that make it a little bit more difficult for some of these criminals to do it, but also equally important is the punishment side of things. And that many of these criminals will continue to do this because the punishment is worth the risk. And so how do we make sure that when this happens, when they get caught, that a proper punishment is, is actually associated with it as well, that will make them think, think twice about what they are going to do next. And so, you know, I think from a brand perspective, it's really just important to use us as a resource. And and if there is an issue in a particular country, or if there's something that, you know, you're constantly seeing is a theme in one particular area to make sure that we know about it, because, you know, that's, that's something that we want to know. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think, as you mentioned, the criminals, because it is a criminal value proposition in this space, the money is really, really good the likelihood of them going away without some sort of penalty is pretty low. As long as there's large amounts of money to be made, there is a a motivating factor for the criminal element to continue at this process. So a really good point. When you think about the future, as you think about brand protection, as brands think about this, as you continue to collaborate and work with other folks, is there something you see as the trend in the future or something to highlight as a thought process? Oh, I mean, you know, I think that there's a lot that's potentially happening in the future when it comes to brand protection. One of the things that we are finding is that these counterfeit rings are increasingly complicated and they have various levels and layers and jurisdictions that they operate in. And so from a policy perspective, that makes it a little bit more complicated for us to be able to manage it in in the way that is best and that you could have two very different parts of the same issue working in different countries. And so it just complicates the conversations a little bit and complicates the way to, to properly enforce some of the issues that we're seeing. And so I think that's one thing that we're, we're continuing to work on and continuing to, to keep an eye on. And then, you know, I think in the post-COVID world, and I am guilty as well, you know, every single day there is a small parcel at my door <laughs> for, you know, sometimes just like a toothbrush or, or something like that, right? Exactly. And so, you know, I think the, the small parcel shipment space is uh, it's obviously something that people are tracking right now, but uh, sure. you know it's not an issue that's going to go away. And I think uh, is an issue that we really need to make sure that we manage well, because it's 
it's very, very tough to, to track every single one of those boxes and to make sure that we're doing everything we can to, to stop things that are flowing into our country and, and flowing you know, into others as well. Yes, for sure. For sure. The uh, gentleman we had on the podcast previous to yours is, I don't know if you know uh, Stephen Lee, who's the chief IP counsel at Target Stores, a really great guy. He has other sort of brand protection challenges in terms of trademarks and people sort of retangling the trademark space, you know, just from a filing perspective. His challenges sometimes are a little bit different, but he wanted to ask you a particular question. Great. And his question to you was, as AI-generated, you know, chat GPT are out there, Stephen really wanted to know from you, what is the implications of IP infringement in this new world of sort of AI-generated taking advantage of IP out there? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the, uh, the topic of the day, right? Exactly. In, in that ever since ChatGPT came out, it's rightfully brought many issues and many questions surrounding AI and, and how we want to handle it in the future. And from my perspective, it can be a very exciting thing, right? You know, I, the fact that AI is here and I think here to stay and it's always been here, right? But I think now people are feeling it in a more tangible way to the average consumer in the things that AI can bring. It brings a fun conversation of the excitement of what it can bring. And, and I'm excited about it as well. But it does bring forth real questions about intellectual property, who owns, you know, the intellectual property that, that comes from, you know, these AI generated products. And, you know, I think, you know, brands have a very real right to be concerned and to make sure that it's not going to kind of step into their ownership and, and things that they should be properly compensated for. Yeah, obviously, with the U.S. government, we're, we're looking at it as, as closely as we possibly can. And, and my colleagues and friends over at uh, the Copyright Office, they've launched an initiative recently to examine the copyright law and the policy issues that are, that are raised by AI technology. And so uh, I know that, you know, later on this year and, and continually through, they're doing various listening sessions for the various industries that are focused and, and may be impacted by positively and negatively by AI and products similar to chat GPT. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I think that that's definitely something to, to look out for. And if there are companies that have insights that they want to provide during those listening sessions, I think that that would be great. But, you know, I think I'm the type of person to want to find the good in things as well. So I want, I want to pull all the great things that we can get out of AI and chat GPT, but also make sure that, you know, we're, we're protecting those that need to be protected as well. Yeah. I, I think for me, hearing your answer, that the thing that sort of resonates is any particular brand may have a concern of, about that question that we just discussed, but I think the the value proposition is kind of reminding yourself, you don't have to keep doing this by yourself. I mean, there's other people to talk to. I mean, to your point, joining a listening session, you know, reaching out to a person like yourself, getting a thought about how do you see it, right? Because we see it from our own balconies a little bit differently, and sometimes we need different yeah. ways to look at that problem and identify if there's good there or if there's bad there. And then whether it is one way or another, how do we work together on that problem, right? So very interested. I like that a lot. And the one piece of advice that I love to give companies anytime they're coming to speak to us is it's always great to talk about the problems, but I really appreciate when they come with maybe a couple uh, potential solutions uh, <laughs> as well. And so, you know, anytime, any, any, anytime we're discussing policy issues, it's always fun to kind of pile the issues on, but but if we have a couple ideas on how we could make it better as well, I'm always open to those. Yeah, sure. I, that makes it makes it easier. Speaking of advice, 
what would your advice be to maybe a young person in their 20s graduating college who would love to figure out how to do something similar to what you've done? Like, what should they do? What should they be thinking about? Wow. I'm, I'm very, very blessed to have been in the position that I'm in right now and have had the path that I've taken so far. For me, it's, you know, there's a core of what you're supposed to do, right? Whether you're a student, whether you're fresh into the workforce, your job is to be a great student or your job is to be really great at your job. Focus on that right away because opportunity will come from that. And if people see you as somebody who's really excited about moving up and, and, you know, making an impact in the world, but you're not seen as somebody who's actually good at your job first, those doors will not open. And so, you know, I think that's kind of the piece of advice for, for the younger me that is, is really helped me through is to take that time to focus and be known as, as the expert for what you do. And then from there, the advice that I give every person that starts on my team immediately is to do things in three ways, honest, inclusive, and transparent. Because you may get burned once or twice by, you know, including and, and keeping an, an open book like that. However, nine times out of 10, it's going to benefit you. And if you're seen as that person who is a good colleague, who's honest, inclusive, and transparent, other opportunities will also come your way as well. And then when those opportunities do come, don't close the door so quickly because you never know what's, what, where it can take you. Yeah, for sure. Great advice. Great advice for pursuing a career similar to yours or any career, I think. Those are good, sound advice. When you think about your career, is there someone who inspired you? Is there someone that sort of gave you that inspiration? I mean, I'm, you know, I, I have to take the easy answer on that one. And, and that's, that's absolutely my parents in that my parents, they sacrificed everything that they could, you know, for the five kids that they have to come to the U.S. and, and make a better life for us. And so for me, the inspiration came from, you know, wanting to make sure that I was making them proud. And I know that's the same for all of my siblings as well. And so, you know, while we all went on to kind of different professional careers and, and had different passions, the work ethic that we all have and, and kind of the belief in just wanting to make everything around us a better place really does sit in all of us. And, and that was rooted from our parents. Well, that's awesome. Listen, that's, that's important, right? I mean, some people have other people who inspire them, but Certainly what sounds like what your parents did is inspiring for sure. So Tarek, what would you want to ask our next guest? We have another person coming up from another hero in brand protection. What would you like to know from them? Oh, I could make it super complicated and make them really squirm. Now, you know, I think from, from my seat, you know, the one thing that I always ask is if there's one rule or something that the U.S. government IP group could change, what would it be and why? And, and then that gives us something to go back to and to think about. That's awesome. Is that just as a hint, is there stuff, so, something you would recommend in that answer? I refuse to provide any opinion uh, on the question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll save it. We'll, we'll, we'll listen. Well, you'll tune in to the person who follows you and we'll see how to answer that question. I, I listen to every single one of these podcasts. They're fantastic. Awesome. So let me do a quick Four question, 15 second express round with you, Tarek, on, on these important questions. Ready? Here we go. Favorite music, band, or singer? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I'm going to have to say Prince. I, I've, I've always been a huge fan of Prince, but recently I was lucky enough to see uh, Carlos Santana in concert, and that blew me away. And so I think I, I kind of moved towards the, uh, the amazing musician side of things. Great. Favorite book? Oh, so, you know, actually, I, I'm never one to actually say that I have a favorite book, but I think in terms of what I like to read, I really like to dig into biographies. I, I like understanding 
kind of what makes certain people click and, and to try to incorporate some of the positive attributes of individuals into, uh, into my life. Yeah, awesome. And if you could eat just one food for the rest of life, what would that food be? I'm going to cheat the system. I'm going to say buffet. <laughs> buffet. You want the whole thing. You, wanna, <laughs> you always want to have a buffet around, huh? <laughs> there you go. Now, I'm, I'm a steak and potatoes kind of guy, but, uh, but I love a good buffet. Good. And what's your go-to resource to sort of keep you up in the world of brand protection IP? What, what do you read to keep up with what's happened in the world? Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, I'm super blessed with is that, you know, as, as being in the government, companies and industry associations are proactively reaching out and, and coming to me. And so, you know, written products that they're providing me with that, you know, that they've come up with, with issues and recommendations are always super helpful. And then, you know, I, of course, being in the government as well, I have to give a shout out to my sister agencies as well. You know, I think uh, when you're talking about IP and the agencies that work on them, they have amazing resource pages that are that are up to date, that provide any piece of information you could want on IP. So I use a lot of that as well. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was awesome to get to know you and we loved having you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. It was very interesting to learn about your journey and your insights into the intellectual property space. I'd like to highlight a couple of key takeaways from our conversation with Tarak. Number one, criminals are very smart and they're going to continue to adapt to the market no matter what. From Tarek's point of view, it's a very interesting question how drilling down to the foundation is key to understanding the source of the problem. If the issue is in a specific country, how do we make sure to advocate for proper rules and regulations in that country and make it more difficult for criminals? Number two, consumer education is absolutely critical. It's something that needs to happen regularly by all parties involved. Well, that's it for us today. If you like what you've heard, check out the next inspiring story from another hero of brand protection. You can follow us on all our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music, as well as Twitter and LinkedIn. Make it a good day. <laughs>